Welcome to the Elevate the Vibe podcast, bringing you juicy convos with thought leaders discussing the wild world of parenting. Most kids react in a specific way when it comes to full-on allergies to foods. They get very red, big, impressive, blotchy hives, and they get bloody mucousy diarrhea. Anything else in between is not an allergy. It's something else. That clip is from our guest of the show today, Mike Vicioso. Mike is the founder of Growing Healthy Together, a holistic pediatric clinic located in Long Beach, California. And this conversation is incredibly insightful. We really touch on some hot topics that many people kind of shy away from, including vaccines, nutrition, mental health. Mike even helped run an epilepsy department previously. We do talk about seizures and what to look for with kids. I mean, this episode is jam-packed. There's a lot of goodness in there to unpack, so... Well, wait. So I am your host of the Elevate the Vibe podcast, Katie Berlin, and sitting here with me is my hubby, also co-host, Jason Berlin. What up, boo-boo? We're on day 916 of the coronavirus epidemic here, uh, pandemic rather, and I think that we're doing okay, but we're a little stir-crazy. I know I really wanted to go out to PV today, which is one of my favorite places on the planet, Palos Verdes, for those of you who are not LA natives, and it's just a very peaceful, serene area with dramatic cliffs and dramatic ocean vistas, and super peaceful place, and I just couldn't make it out there today, and just a little bummed, but... yeah. Jason was embarrassed by his wild hair. So that's why he couldn't make it out there. He was afraid that (laughs) seagulls and dolphins would spot him and they wouldn't quite know what to make of his motif. It's kind of a frizzy mess right now. It's hard to, to say exactly what the style is. It's, I guess, kind of like David Hasselhoff meets, uh, I don't know, someone else who has not groomed but themselves in a while. But I think that every dude... <laughs> who maybe doesn't cut their own hair or have someone that cuts their hair is in the same boat right now. That's true. And, you know, I keep hoping that Shogi here will break out the shears and just go to town on me and uh, I'll wake up with this amazing haircut. I really but, uh... don't think that that's what you want. Okay, let me, tell, <laughs> let me tell you a little story. When I was in high school, my ex-boyfriend's brother, who was in my grade, was like, hey, can you help me cut my hair and shave this part? And he had a fade in the back. So I was like, okay. So I just took that electric razor and just went right up the back of his head on like the whatever setting it was, like zero (laughs) or one. Yeah. And this huge chunk missing. So then his brother, my boyfriend at the time, had to fix it. So like I I think I'm a little scarred from that experience. And uh, I don't know if that's the outcome that you're looking for. No, but theoretically you have had a lot of haircuts since then and you've seen people get their haircuts since then. So I feel like that makes you more than qualified during a time like this to just go ahead and chop my hair right up. What do you think? If you're ready to experiment with Katie Scissorhands, by all (laughs) means, we can make it happen. Katie Scissorhands, oh my gosh. All right, so without further ado, we are going to jump into this episode. So Vibe Hive, let's welcome Mike Vicioso to the Elevate the Vibe podcast. Get over here, Mike. Are we live? We are. All right. Okay. Awesome. All right. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. Thank Welcome you. to Elevate the Vibe. <laughs> all right. Thanks for inviting me. Yes. <laughs> so you. we want you to go ahead and introduce yourself awesome. to the audience. Great. Uh, my name is Michael Vicioso. I'm a pediatric nurse practitioner here in Long Beach. 
I own my own clinic, my own private practice, and I've been doing that for almost seven years now. Um, prior to that, I worked about 20 years in the emergency department in various different capacities. So all my experience is peds. So I'm a kid guy. I do all kids only and i um, super passionate about what I do. Um, our practice has a holistic uh, tilt to it. Uh, we offer care, sort of an, an option for parents looking for an alternative provider, um, something different from their kid than the traditional model. And so we blend a mix of traditional and alternative and we have a natural path in our practice as well. Um, we have five practitioners, total nurse practitioners and um, experts in essential oil use. Obviously, nutrition plays a big, huge role in what we do. Um, so, yeah, very excited to be here and, uh, yeah, far away. Yeah, so <laughs> we want a little background on where you grew up and sort of what led you onto oh, yeah. this path. Sure. So, born and raised in Southern California. I lived here my whole life. Um, my dad uh, was a, a surgeon and a physician, and he had his own practice as well. Um, so, healthcare has been in my family from the beginning. Um, you know, along the way, I obviously spoke the language of healthcare every night at the dinner table. <laughs> my mom was a registered nurse. My sister's a registered nurse. My brother's the only weird one. He became an engineer. And so, so it made sense for me to go, to go that, to go that direction. Um, in the, uh, late eighties, you know, we had that huge economic crash and, uh, was the time working as a. Um, salesperson and chemical sales and um, my dad's like yeah you know get into healthcare and so I went to nursing school went to LA County School of Nursing um, did my my um, associate's degree there um, moved on from there worked at, uh, at different places Children's Hospital Los Angeles doing research in um, neurology uh, which was really cool and went to UCI briefly and helped them start their epilepsy program there and uh, as a registered nurse, and then um, fell back to Children's LA and worked two years a night shift, kind of had to do my duty, <laughs> and did two years in infectious disease unit, which do you oh. think, which is kind of a hot Yay, topic right fun, now. fun, right, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so did that for a couple of years and then ended up in the emergency department. Uh, and it was in about uh, 96 that I did the, started working in the ER. Uh, they really, really learned a lot. Uh, obviously, Children's Hospital Los Angeles is a huge quaternary care pediatric center, uh, trauma center. Uh, we saw the worst of the worst. Uh, so sort of like almost being on the front lines um, and developed a lot of really good relationships there. Saw a lot of stuff, like I said. Um, and then in about, about six to eight years of that, um, my memory fades, uh, I can't remember up, yesterday, I know, so right? like, don't. No. <laughs> right. Well, your, your, the short-term memory is supposed to go first before your long-term memory. So that's, that's <laughs> okay, great. Good good I don't have either. <laughs> I, right? yeah, yeah. uh, I ended up at um, St. Joseph's Hospital in Orange, which is affiliated with CHOP, Children's Hospital mm -hmm. of Orange County. Yep. And so there, I developed their pediatric emergency program uh, in conjunction with the physicians that were there and eventually opened up the, uh, helped build and open up the ER at Chalk itself. Oh, wow. um, during the last few years at Chalk, I went back to school, got my nurse practitioner uh, certificate, and um, and then just had this crazy dream of opening up my own practice. Uh, my philosophy had always been sort of trying alternative methods first for treating illness before jumping into a more traditional model. 
Um, obviously, in the emergency department, that's not an option, right? You know, you're dying. We're doing CPR. There's really no essential oil or or herb that we can give you. Yeah, <laughs> or acute care. Most yeah, dire moment. So that's totally appropriate, right? But in my, with my kids, you have three, four kids, and uh, lost count. Four kids. <laughs> and, uh, it happens. It happens. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, I didn't try. I mean, that's how I raised them. You know, I, I did alternative methods first. You know, just like my grandma taught me. You know, the lemon and and ginger teas to help them over colds and steamy showers. You know, Vicks Vapor Rub was really kind of part of our Hispanic culture and. And we use those things first before resorting to like antibiotics or antihistamines or anything like that. So I thought to myself, why, why can't I offer those services in a primary care pediatric practice? And why not? And I did. And it's been really wonderful. Like I said, we opened in 2000, 2013 and uh, we've um, been growing ever since in leaps and bounds. And um, we're established as a recognizable force in Long Beach for primary pediatric care and um um, we've just recently, uh, sort of a, uh, for me, a badge of honor almost, I wear it proudly, uh, Children's Hospital Los Angeles reached out to us and uh, asked us to affiliate with them. And uh, we accepted and now we're officially affiliate of Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Um, what that means, it sort of validates our clinical care. Uh, for those people that are wondering, nurse practitioner versus doctor, when you're recognized by the biggest quaternary care pediatric research facility in the area, providing that high level of care, hopefully that pushes that idea aside and it's like, oh yeah, no, they're validated by the best pediatric care around. So yes, um, we, we are very proudly uh, representing Children's at LA. Congrats, that's so, awesome. Thank you, thank you. Do you find that there are parents or potential uh, future patients that yeah. maybe are unsure because... Yeah. It is a nurse practitioner yeah, group? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So there's a lot of sort of misconceptions of what nurse practitioners do. Um, if I can plug my website for a moment, um, it's Growing Healthy Together, ghtkids.com. And um, in there, there's a really good couple of pages on the difference between you know nurse practitioners and physicians. And so I refer you there for sort of the links and contacts and research that supports our quality of care and how we're different than doctors and we're proudly proud to say that we're different than doctors you know but um but yeah i get parents that come in and interview me to see if they want me to be their pediatric provider for their unborn child and so that question pops up a lot and so um so we our training is fundamentally the same um we are focused in our pediatric care from the get-go and so we don't do the whole spectrum of medical care for all different ages as pediatric nurse practitioners so we're really from the beginning focused just on kids. Um, depending on your schooling options, we can spend as little as 18 months in training, but as many as like I did, you know, it took me six years to get it done. And it wasn't because, you know, it was just the, the pathway I took. I did my master's degree first and then got my post-master's certificate later. Um, we do over, you know, depending on programs, 1600 hours of clinical care along the way. So um, we come out ready to go. And again, our focus is specifically pediatric primary care. So we're not acute care. We're not doing surgery. Uh, we're not opening up chests and doing com compressions on heart rate. We're taking care of the primary care patient whose focus is wellness. And so um, we're very, very good at that. And, uh, and then using our nursing model, our holistic care approach, um, again, it provides an op option for parents who are looking for that kind of, uh, that kind of difference. And for the audience transparency, uh, our son is actually a patient of GHT. And of course, 
what drew me to the practice was the holistic aspect awesome. of it. It was that combination of we try this route first and then, yeah. you know, if needed, there are the sort of Western techniques right. that are available exactly. as well. So Thank with you. pediatrics, pediatrics is really born all the way through 18 years of age. That's correct. That's how we define it. Yes. So then you, you'll see a wide variety yeah. of patients that come through your door. Absolutely. So I'd be so curious for just general knowledge and idea of maybe what children are going through at certain periods of time <laughs> in their life, sort of what you see maybe in the first few years from yeah. like babies to toddlers yeah. and then... Um, elementary school age, middle school age through high school, right? maybe some of the common issues sure. that you come across. And... we got a couple weeks to do this, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can you just condense, condense it to 18 five years into like a nice... 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Right, right. A nice, right. A nice snippet here. 32, yeah. 33 seconds. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think in the beginning, um, we, we obviously for newborns and kids first six months of life, we're really focused on big problems. So on the, in the kid, from the kid's perspective, we sort of back up a little bit. We sort of break down our, um, our clinical care into treating the patient and treating the parents. So, um, a lot of times people forget about that, that the kids got come to usually two parents attached to them. And, uh, so we have to have that knowledge base as well. So uh, again, in the first six months, we're really focused on big problems. So first few days of life, you know, the cardiac structures are changing in a child. Uh, so being able to identify a big cardiac problem in the beginning is essential. So that's why we see them early on after discharge from the hospital or from the wherever birthing center they're birthed at. Um, we want to make sure that those heart structures are normal. We check for making sure the liver function is normal too. So those kids that are not properly digesting food or that have high levels of jaundice, you know, again, she could be a potentially big problem there that we need to take care of. As they continue to grow, we're checking each developmental milestone along the way. And in the beginning, you know, for, for moms in particular, watching for things like maternal depression, which is very, very common in the beginning, making sure breastfeeding is going really well. So we have um, practitioners in our office that are experts in breastfeeding. We also have access to lactation consultants out of the office as well that can help with those problems family coping oh my god you have this new creature in your life and mm -hmm. guys are you doing okay we check in with the parents at every visit to make sure that there's you know ha there's support being being made there that there's family support that the that the, the 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 parents are cooperating with each other and that there's not like a lot of dif difficulty and disagreement right <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know. so so the, it's 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 multifactorial in the beginning so we have sort of a clinical perspective of the child we have the wellness kind of family unit. How's that going? And then like now, what's going on in the community? Um, you guys, obviously, I don't know if this, is, this goes out live or what, but, you know, uh, coronavirus is a hot topic right now. And every day for the last two weeks, I'm getting asked questions. Is it safe for me to take my infant out? And that's a really legitimate question. Um, so so go, what's going on in the community plays a big, big role in how we assess that, that family unit. So, so eating, feeding, peeing, pooping, sleeping. Babies don't do much more than that. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so I don't do much more than that. <laughs> well, thank they also wake up every two hours. But... <laughs> right. They wake up a lot. Nobody's sleeping very much. Everybody's sort of on edge. Uh, we want to make sure everybody's staying well nourished during that period of time. Important that, that, uh, when there's two parents involved, that the one parent's supporting the other parent and making sure that the moms who are breastfeeding are staying, staying well nourished. 
because sometimes that gets forgotten because you're so worried about the, uh, the, the infant. Um, so even though what seems maybe from an outsider's perspective as basic fundamental stuff, we're checking in at every visit to make sure that that's that going well. Um, as the kid gets older, continuing on, I mean, the, the common theme throughout is developmental milestones. So the kids reaching each of their developmental milestones appropriately. Obviously, nutrition plays a big role as well. So we're checking in at every visit. How's the kid eating? How's you know, nutrition going on at home? Are you guys following a healthy lifestyle? Um, it's really key in, in promoting good quality health moving forward. Um, toddlers are fun, right? You get into everywhere. Mm-hmm. So safety is tantamount. And so at each of the toddler visits, we're talking about locking up the cupboards, making sure you have the outlet cover, the covers on the outlets, that um, anything that's, you know, medications are out of the child's re- mm-hmm. reach. So safety plays a big role. The proper size car seat, you know, mm-hmm. making sure you're wearing helmets when you're out and about on scooters or bicycles or whatever. Uh, so, um, so safety plays a big role at that age. Um, school age kids, as they get older, you know, four, five, six year old kids, uh, we're going to make sure that again, cognitively fun- they're functioning well, that there's no, no signs of symptoms of ADHD, of, uh, of, um, autism, uh, the communications happening, um, that they're again, reaching their developmental milestones, the socialization aspects of going to school. Uh, we discuss those at, uh, at each of those visits as well. And always developmental milestones and nutrition throughout the throughout each of those visits. As the kids get older, we see them less and less frequently in the office. Um, after they turn age three, they have one a year wellness visits. Um, so we have to take that opportunity to get all the stuff in. So at our office, and I can't tell this tell you this happens at all the other pediatric offices. We spend at least thirty minutes with each of our families of each of their wellness visits to make sure that we're covering all this stuff. And um, there's a lot to talk about. So. When they get older now, the socialization aspects and how is the kid coping at school? Uh, how's the teachers? What's the teacher's impression of how the kid's doing? Uh, all plays a big role in, uh, in making sure that they're, that they're healthy and they stay well throughout, particularly mental health. Just this year, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of late coming in my opinion, but just this year, uh, we're doing uh, uh, focused mental health assessments on all ages now. Used to be sort of wow. those teen kids, you know, or sort okay. of that the risk factors started coming in with drug use and kind of, you know, inappropriate socialization with the wrong people, et cetera. But even with infants now, we're checking with moms and dads and, and um, parents to say, hey, how's it going? And there's mm-hmm. a little mental health checklist that we're doing with every, each and every kid and each and every family. And so, um, and, it, and it, it sort of, and for some providers, it's an awkward conversation to have. Obviously, we're very comfortable with it at my office because we have that kind of relationship with our, with our patients and families. But this helps break the ice because we give the parents an opportunity to read through this checklist to say, hey, is there any of this stuff going on? Is there divorce? Is there death in the family? Is there you know, drug use, et cetera? And so they can privately answer those questions without actually verbalizing them. And then it helps break the ice when it comes to those kind of issues. So, so the parents would receive that checklist. And depending on the child's age, do some of those factors change? Yeah, okay. absolutely. So um, the forms are very age specific. Um, we have generic forms. We have, sorry, we have health, mental health forms for the super young. And then we have mental health forms that we actually give the kid to fill out. As Once they they're over. a certain age. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's been, it's, it's time. You know, the mental health is a big issue now. And so we're addressing it. 
And then with the older children that then fill out that form, mm -hmm. let's say that there's something on the mm -hmm. form that alerts you. Good. And you don't necessarily want to talk about it in front of the parent. Right. How does that process work? That's a really good question. Uh, we actually honestly struggle with that. You know, there's not a really easy way to address that. Uh, now, there's laws in place that allow for what's called assent. So you need to get the child's permission to, to, to talk to the parent about what's going on with their life. Um, so as they get, so the, you know, in our state at eight years old, believe it or not, is the age of assent wow. where you have to get permission from the child wow. to do certain treatments and to ask questions. Uh, that, that permission piece from the parents uh, kicks in at 14, 15 years of age. And so we're very sort of, you know, sort of kick the, <laughs> you know, politely kick the parents out of the room. Mm -hmm. And uh, we ask permission first, of course, hey, it's okay for me to talk to Jim, you know, Johnny or whatever uh, privately. Most parents agree. And, uh, and so if anything divulged in that moment, I have to get the kid's permission to tell the parent. Wow. And so we actually have a form for that as well. <laughs> I was going to say, if the parents don't agree, then that's kind of a red flag. Then it's like, I don't think you need to talk to my son right now. It can be. It can be. Right. Yeah, we actually encountered that before. Yeah. It involves further investigation, absolutely. Yeah. And so sometimes I'll kick the kid out. Yeah. And say, let's talk to the parent and mm -hmm. you know, get an opportunity to find out what's going on. Because I could see there being so many different scenarios. Like, for example, there could be something happening at school where the child yeah. is in a scenario that's difficult for them. Maybe bullying. Yeah. Like maybe they mm -hmm. have a food allergy and they're just really yeah, self-conscious because they're constantly being ostracized. Yeah. Not even purposefully, but yeah. like, hey, sit at your special table and... You know, we need special treats just for right. you. And it just makes them feel self-conscious. So it like does. that's one scenario. But then there's the other scenario where you're living, maybe you're potentially living in a household that is creating a lot of chaos for you. Sure. And you're mm. a young child. You are sort of trapped in mm. this. You don't right. know how to express it. So I could imagine the feeling of saying like, hey, I want to raise my hand to talk about this and I need to speak to somebody I can trust right. and how <clears throat> difficult that could be to navigate. So what if something comes up and you yeah. then realize like there is an issue here Correct. and we need outside help? What, That's it. What do you do? Yeah, so good question. So um, whenever we get those red flags, now there's varying degrees of red flags, right? So we get the one where it's sort of like a kid who's clearly reaching out for help maybe has an anxiety issue or depression or a potential mental illness that needs to be addressed, those kids we then refer to our pediatric mental health experts. So we have psychologists, psychiatrists that we refer to in the community that do that really help us and really support us in, in our practice. The far extreme to that is a child who's being abused, who's a, who's a risk for himself or risk to others. And there's a very clear process in our state where we actually call the police and the police come in and then they sort out that situation as well. Wow. Okay. In between cases where we feel the kid isn't to harm to, to himself, but there's a potential problem at home, we can call child protective services and they will do the investigation at home to see if there's a problem. So as providers or practitioners in the state of California, we're obligate reporters of child abuse. Mm -hmm. So if we see, if we have an inkling that there's anything going on, we are legally obligated to report to Child Protective Services. And, and then is that anonymous on your end so that you're then protected as well? I mean, no. Yeah. Okay, okay. I mean, if you're going into well, the doctor's office and all of a sudden Child Protective Services... Right, well, but, you know, people get also, a clue, right? But also, schools 
if yeah. it's happening, Correct. like schools are going to be aware of something like that right. too. So right. it's not just like. But they would a, come directly right. into the office, though. Potentially, or, or they, they could well, go, if, to the home. go to the house. Yeah, they would go to the house. Uh, usually, investigate. So what have like a, happened that moment where like you're like talking to the kid and then you press like a little button and you're hearing the <laughs> cops show up with guns? That's different. That's that <laughs> like kid the SWAT who's, team is like. Who's right? I mean, obviously, if there's going to be harm to one of our providers at the office, the kids lashing out on one of us, trying right. to hit us, trying right. to bite us, or whatever. That's that's a, obviously a, that's a nine one one issue. We have, a, yeah. we have a button that we push, yeah, <laughs> but we haven't had to push it yet. So okay. we're knock on, yeah. knock on wood. A lot of wood here. Um, but uh, but no, I mean, I think you know, yeah, no, we're we're obviously licensed practitioners. We're required to report, so we're, we're it's very well you know documented that that who's reporting. But you're right. It's not just they don't they don't just take one person's opinion necessarily. They value our opinion rather high, but it's also the community that they're looking at. How many times has a child uh, abuse report been reported on this child? Has the school chimed in? Is there any other family members that have chimed in? And the the child protective services looks at the entire picture, and then they prioritize based on that piece. Well, how how egregious is this? How soon do we need to go out to the house? That's a sad thing to think about. It doesn't right? happen too often, thank God. Yeah, <laughs> knock on wood, yeah. But, thankfully, you know, it's just like I have a runny nose and, you know, those maybe are the, a by far the most common. <laughs> they are, I have to admit, they are awkward. And we do tell parents that we will call Child Protective Service. And there's that moment of sort of uncomfortableness. But as child advocates, that's our role. And mm-hmm. we have to do what we can to keep that child safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's a really intense. Yeah sort of role to play at the same time. <laughs> it's a big responsibility that we have. So to I yeah. sort of switching gears a little bit. Yeah, thank you. I do want to talk about another very like hot topic, like a big topic, yeah. vaccine. Oh yeah, sure. Yes. So awesome. I want you to talk a little bit about the philosophy of your office yep. as well as what has taken place and changed within the state of California. Yep. And I'm, I know you can't necessarily speak to across the country, but just yeah, how that could roll not, out right. and and what that means for right. parents and children, everyone involved. Excellent. So uh, it's sort of our, it's one of the reasons why parents seek us out is our uh, vaccine approach uh, when it comes to um, to talking about vaccines and, and, uh, and having that kind of open, friendly conversation, non-threatening. Um, um, we just, uh, we just developed a new term for it. It's not coming to my mind right now, but it's it's just it's, it exemplifies our approach when it comes to patient care. How we're not going to kick you out of our practice if you're doing picking an alternative vaccine schedule or choosing not to vaccinate. We feel those kids still need to have primary care services, whether they're vaccinated or not. Um, we're huge fans and huge promoters of vaccines. We think vaccines work really well. A vast majority, uh, 99.8% of kids who get vaccines do exceedingly well with them without any problems at all. We do recognize that there's a very tiny, very small minority of patients that don't do so well. And, um, and in some cases do require medical exemption from vaccines. Um, bottom line, it's our progressive approach to vaccines. I just thought of it, uh, that we are willing to have that open conversation with you at each and every visit to talk about the risk and benefits associated with vaccines with your particular child. Um, and we think it's an important conversation to have as often as possible. We want to make sure you're, as parents, educated on all the risk and benefits associated with vaccines. Um, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, there's a lot of information that sort of forces you into making an opinion. Uh, the state of California has recently had a few laws in the books that have changed uh, requiring um, vaccines for school, which we agree with and we support. 
Um, we feel that uh, school is a huge, is an area where those diseases can be transmitted easily. It's just been quite political <laughs> and been been very stressful, and it's removed um, parents' rights to choose for their kids what they want for vaccines. So, um, so some I've heard some other pediatric practices who don't allow parents patients into their practice, uh, who've chosen an alternative schedule or who chose not to vaccinate. And I think probably a majority of those patients are coming to see us because, again, we're, we're willing to have that open, frank conversation with you and hopefully educate you to understand what's best for your child. Um, but again, we support the CDC schedule. We, we offer it in our practice. Um, we do do um, alternative schedules as well. Uh, we feel that a vaccinated child is safe in the community and that protects the community as a whole. Um, sometimes parents forget that there's other kids out there that can't get vaccines because they have cancer or they have HIV or they have an autoimmune disorder. They can't support vaccines. And um, we're vaccinating your child to protect them. And so uh, sometimes that's sort of, um, you know, not understood well. Um, so it's yeah. a very tenuous subject. And I'm sort of, you know, speaking about it in, in a public forum is difficult for me. I'd rather have this conversation privately with each of our parents in our exam room, and then it's then we're all very safe in that environment. But we're proud of our vaccine position, and um, we feel like we need to provide a service to the community, and our service is educating them to make sure they're making the right decision for their kid. I'd be curious to know, let's say that you have two scenarios where you have one parent who really just doesn't want to vac mm -hmm. vaccinate just because they are educating themselves on specific literature that says, you know, X, Y, Z, it's been linked to these scenarios mm -hmm. and they, and they just don't feel it's necessary. Mm -hmm. And then you have this other parent who, like you said, maybe their child is dealing with a chronic mm -hmm. illness and they just can not vaccinate. Yep. So when you see these two types of parents, I want to, I want to sort of focus on the one who chooses not to vaccinate at all, mm -hmm. but has perfectly quote unquote, healthy children mm -hmm. that could receive a CDC recommended vaccine yeah. schedule. So that parent would um, come into the office there. They just say, you know, I'm opting out of this. And there's that conversation yeah. when their child needs to enter school. Mm -hmm. What are some of the scenarios that that person would be presented with yep. so that w where they sort of have to make this decision and right. it's a fork in the road? Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Obviously, we're seeing quite a bit of that lately as the advent of the new law that recently passed, uh, pretty much disallowing uh, medical exemptions other than what's specified by the CDC. There's two or three criteria that are, qualify you for a medical exemption now. Uh, so, yes, so we have parents that need to get their kid caught up. There's 17 separate vaccines required for entry into school. So this, the CDC schedule, I think, now has 64 total vaccines. And so part of the conversation is, look, it's not the full schedule. Uh, so the vaccines that are required for school are, are, they are what they are. And it's been specified by the state that these are required. Um, the, we usually tell parents that we know that we give these vaccines to newborn babies and they do exceedingly well. We do five or six at a time at newborn baby visits and the kids do really well. And now that your kid's older, the expectation is that they're going to be that much, they're going to do just as well as a newborn or better than a newborn infant at getting those, those vaccines. Um, uh, we have plans to get the kid caught up uh, based on the CDC catch-up schedule within a short period of time. Most schools in our area require that the kid have 
all seven teams before starting. Um, but because of the disinformation that's out there, I've heard different stories about schools allowing sort of some leeway when it comes to that. Um, but the conversation is, again, very specific and unique to each situation. And so we have to kind of understand where the parent's coming from and what information they've read and what concerns they have and try to address each and every one individually as opposed to just saying, oh, don't worry about that. Your kid's going to do fine, right? So we, we have to know, okay, what have you heard about this vaccine and what do you understand about that? And then hopefully we can help them understand that the science behind it really doesn't support some of their ideas that they're, that they're referring to. Do you see that some of those parents end up choosing to go on alternative school routes so that they don't have to put their child into a school system that does require those 17? Yes. So that's another option available to them as well. Thank you for bringing that up because they're, they're, you can homeschool a child in our state currently, although supposedly that's going to change as well uh, down the road that won't, won't, won't require vaccines for the kids. So my understanding of the state law and knowing that it's changing every day and the information I have today might not be timely, but the last time I read it was that if your child is not in an organized school and they're not being taught by licensed teachers, they are not required to present proof of vaccines at the time of registration. Because all homeschool kids are required to register with the state to let the state know that they're being homeschooled. Um, so from that perspective, at this point in time, my understanding is they're not requiring proof of vaccines at that point. I've heard this, and I don't know if this is true as well, but there are some conversations that say, like, you can almost buy your way out of choosing to vaccinate because there are certain <laughs> elite private schools that maybe would, you know, for the right price. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if this is true. I haven't heard that. <laughs> okay, okay. I've just sort of like... Well, I have heard of unscrupulous doctors who will accept money for you know, oh, for changing. Okay. The, yeah, okay. I've heard of that. Okay. See, that's I don't know. I've also heard that other doctors that don't follow the CDC recommended catch up schedule and will do eight or 10 vaccines at once. I think there was one recently that just got caught for that and went to jail or prison about that. Yeah. For yeah, falsifying vaccine yeah, records. He had yeah. done it for years and years. So, yeah. you know, just there's been unvaccinated kids running around thinking they are, yeah. and they could have mm. been, you know, caught something or infected yeah, I mean, someone else. Kids, they, sure, just, sure, they sure. don't know. Yeah, right, right. exactly. Now I want to talk about the other scenario yeah. where you have a child that maybe has a chronic illness and yep. it's not recommended for them to have mm -hmm. vaccines, but let's say that their chronic illness doesn't keep them from being able to enter a school system right. to learn. Right. What is that process like for that parent? Well, you know, our experience with that is pretty minimal. We don't have a lot of kids in our practice that have a lot of chronic illnesses. Most of our, you know, thankfully, most of our patients are very healthy. And, um, but the few that we've had, right, the few that we've had, um, you know, we've worked with them. We've worked with their specialists to see which vaccines they can get and which ones they can't. And then when they go to school, what accommodations are needed at school in order for them to go without at risk for them getting sick as well. So obviously it's a very coordinated effort between, like say for a cancer patient, between their oncologist, their blood levels, what are their, their latest CBC and white count levels to make sure that they're safe to go to school. And then at what point in time during their treatment can they get caught up on vaccines so that we're not you know, putting that kid at undue risk at that point. And there's just a certain um, waiver essentially that the parents receive and depending on whoever the other specialists are. Yeah, usually that, for those particular scenarios, the specialists have all chimed in and they've given us that that waiver okay. or whatever to get the kid out of uh, yeah. the requirements for school at this point. Yeah. 
Do you ever find any um, sort of like social ramifications for kids who have been vaccinated against, say, kids, not against, but compared to kids that haven't been vaccinated? Like if they're on the same playground, if their parents know the other kid hasn't yeah, been vaccinated, that's, does that kid ha- become ostracized? And then later on, you know, maybe he has a resentment to his parents yeah. for not being vaccinated? I have absolutely. Not in my practice, but I have heard stories of other kids that, that as they got older, they're like, why didn't you have me vaccinated? mom and dad or whatever and i i want to get vaccinated at that point they have the right to again get caught up on their vaccines um they actually can yeah they actually can give assent at that point if Mm -hmm. they if we feel that they're have all the information correctly and that and the the kid says no i don't want to be vaccinated or yes i want to be vaccinated they do technically have the right to do that um but in a court of law and there has been a few of these scenarios in my practice as well the court will um defer to the CDC recommended schedule at that point. So if it gets to that point where the child says no and the mom says yes and it goes to court, the court's going to be in rule in favor of the CDC schedule at that point. And in that sort of scenario, then if the kid still just refuses because you can't just forcibly strap a kid down and force him to have these vaccines, they would have to remove him from school or remove him even from the state? Or forcibly give him vaccines, yeah. Oh. So you could <laughs> force him. At night. Like stra- yeah, <laughs> at like night. Wake up the vaccine boogie monster. That's oh, awesome. Just, that's like a, that's a, my, that would I, be a, I, I just, somebody coming in at night with like a needle. Yeah, and, I just think of like some cartoon character that is a giant well, syringe. You know, again, our, it, like sneaking our, our preferred, <laughs> that that's not, doesn't happen. <laughs> The kid eventually goes, fine, all right, I'll take it, you know, but uh, eight-year-olds are tough. (laughs) It can be tough. Yeah, yeah. That's a great story. So, yeah, you know, I mean, I think, you know, ultimately, see, that's why we're different. We're we're at that point with our families and our practice that this is a very comfortable conversation and we're it never gets to those extremes. It always is like, okay, inevitability, we got to do this. And the kids are like, fine, let's do this. Um, and the parents are all all nodding their heads and the providers are all nodding their heads. We're doing the right thing for your kid. And so it's never, it's a comfortable conversation and it's just part of the regular routine visits at our office. So Another factor that I want to talk about or ask about is the nutrition piece yeah. with children. Awesome. Depending on their age and yeah. so, I know there are specific milestones and maybe if they're not hitting certain milestones, then... You look at nutrition differently, but yep. let's say that a child's hitting milestones. Mm-hmm. What is the best process for not only introducing foods to your child, but then once they begin to get older and they can make their own food choices, sort of steering them or helping to steer <laughs> them on the right yeah. path? Shepherd. That's yes. it. Yeah. Right? It's, it's called parenting. Uh, yeah. We talk a lot about parenting in our office. And, and again, again, half of our time is spent teaching parents how to parent. Uh, but yes, so let's talk about nutrition. Um, really, really important, right? Um, I think uh, we've been, we've, we start adding foods to a child's life earlier than ever before. Uh, we start at four months of age sometimes. So we look for two developmental findings in a newborn. They have to sit up halfway decently, not perfect, but halfway decently. And they have a really genuine interest in the foods that they're eating, that you guys are eating at the table. So if they're watching you take your food to your mouth and salivating and like come pawing at you, like, come on. <laughs> and they can sort of sit up, you know, halfway nice, strap them in a high chair and they're sitting up. They're not going to slouch over. Uh, they're ready to feed. And so, the slouch is because of uh, choking hazard. Choking yeah, hazard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Um, there's a lot of different paradigms out there on feeding. American Academy of Pediatrics has their recommendations. There's another paradigm that we support. It's called baby-led weaning, uh, which is very helpful in getting the kids to participate in the feeding process, which is what it's all about. Uh, you'll see exaggerated pictures online about what baby-led weaning looks like. I think I saw a kid with a huge cookie in his hand, like taking a bite out of it. Yeah, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about kids feeding themselves. So grabbing the food, putting in their mouth, opening their mouth, coordinating the tongue and swallow reflex. It's all part of the experience of introducing foods, teaching kids how to feed themselves. Healthy, my paradigm throughout the care continuum, healthy fruits and vegetables, lean proteins. There's really no need for anything else at that point. You're going to sustain yourself with healthy fruits and vegetables and lean proteins. I hear sort of, I think it's probably more cultural. So you see these other paradigms that kind of take place, particularly with keto. Keto is really hot right now. Mm. Like keto is like the worst thing you can ever do to yourself. Mm. Like don't do keto. Um, and I, I also believe that keto is very dangerous for children. Yeah, absolutely. Extremely so dangerous. high fat, high protein diets is just not, you know, if some moms do bone broth in the beginning, that's fine. You know, if you want to get the kid you know, into that kind of stuff, that's okay. But really healthy fruits and vegetables, lean proteins. And the vast majority of food you take in are the fruits and vegetables. Um, healthy fats like avocado and olive oil and those kind of things. So, um, so yeah, I mean, so, and then as this kid gets older, that's just, he doesn't know anything else at that point, right? You need oats, you need, you know, healthy grains as well. So including in those as the kid gets older is appropriate. Um, but, um, but I hear parents say, you know, little Jimmy won't eat anything but chicken nuggets and French fries. Well, well little Jimmy in the first place. isn't getting in the car and driving to McDonald's and ordering <laughs> yeah. the chicken nuggets you and French fries. You haven't seen little Jimmy get in the car, man. He <laughs> takes it over. You probably do it, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, you know, it's in the, I, get, I, and I have to give you a, a story. It's a true story that happened to myself with my first kid, you know, being a first parent as well. We made mistakes. And it's all trial and error. That's the best scientific model that applies to, to children, to, to raising children is trial and error. And my kid, my son, reached a point in time, well, I don't think he was two yet, well, all he would eat was uh, turkey, uh, turkey dogs and mac and cheese. Okay, yes, I gave him turkey dogs and mac and cheese because I didn't know any better as a new parent, right? Uh, and so now I'm like, oh, crap, we're stuck on this stuff. Let's move on to find it. And he refused wouldn't eat spaghetti, wouldn't eat anything else. He would just refuse to the point where he started losing weight, which is never good to see a kid lose weight unless they're already big and fat. So, um, so it was really a struggle and I promised myself not to let that happen again. So we got, you know, as we had more kids, we got smarter <laughs> as we all do. Uh, and it, you know, we didn't, that wasn't an option anymore. You know, the turkey dogs and mac and cheese are just not an option. And so healthy fruits and vegetables, lean proteins. We even snuck vegetables and like the spaghetti sauce, mm -hmm. you know, and you just get creative on how to get the kid the stuff. Now they have these cool things, all these cool devices they didn't have when my kids were young. I'm totally jealous of you guys get the little pouches, you know, with the stuff so you can mm -hmm. kind of put whatever you want in the pouches. And there's these devices that kind of get the kids interested as well with the spoons that are cool and the bowls that don't tip. And we didn't have any of that. <laughs> I'm like, come on, really? Yeah. We just had to struggle with what we had. And, yeah. and, you know, it turned out okay, obviously, you know, there's a whole bunch of us out there but um but it's just make it makes it much more interesting now much more fun i think and if you think about it as if you stick to that paradigm healthy vegetables or healthy lean proteins fruits and vegetables and nothing else just simplifies it to a ton and it just hopefully makes it more fun and easy for you to do it and and like i said the kid won't know anything different 
Let's say that there's children who maybe are on, uh, I don't want to call it an extreme, but really have a very healthy diet. Mm -hmm. Like their parents have introduced and kept them on a very Mm -hmm. healthy diet. Then maybe these children enter preschool or elementary (laughs) school and they're introduced to so many other foods that they really haven't had exposure to. Doritos. Yeah. Do you, (laughs) do you find that parents are reporting like, Hmm. Hey, since this has been introduced, I'm Mm -hmm. struggling. Or have you seen that kids that sort of stick to those diets continue on because that's just what they're used to and that's what they like to eat? Yes. That's a really good question. I I tell parents that, you know, you lose a little bit of your kid every time they go off to daycare, go to school or, or off to college or whatever, as they get older, they become their own people at that point. That's why you have them those first few years. And that's really important to put in whatever lifestyle you want them to continue. You sort of ingrain it at that point. And I, I, I think the, the, what you said is true. I think most kids that that's all they know, maybe in the beginning, they're kind of like, wow, it's all this other stuff that I'd never been exposed to. But then they're like revert to their, their usual habits. Um, but, you know, I, there's other kids, too, that, that that's what they eat at school. They eat the cheeseburgers and the hot dogs and the french fries that the school serves you, which does get me off on a tangent about school lunches. <laughs> we'll be here all day. But, um, but you know, at home, it's still that paradigm of, you know, healthy fruits and vegetables, lean proteins. And so they, they get maybe a little bit at school, but the majority of stuff they get is healthy. And then what about when they get to the age where maybe they've, uh, gained more independence, either they're driving mm-hmm. or they're spending a lot more time with friends. Mm-hmm. So even if they're maybe like 12 years old mm-hmm. through 16 years old, it's sort of the same. Yeah. They get to make story. their decisions for themselves. Yeah. And so, and, and so hopefully by then you've taught that good foundation of healthy nutrition and yes, they'll deviate as we all do. From time to time, and they won't make that the norm. I am a saint. You okay? are no. really. You look, <laughs> I yeah. never made one nutrition mistake. She, no, in she my doesn't life. deviate from ice cream one night. <laughs> nice, nice. Not one night go. a week. She's right. consistent. There's the bus. Every night. <laughs> yeah. Right yeah. underneath the bus. Right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I think that's you. Just that's the hope as a parent, and it's not only with nutrition, but it's with mental health and making the right decisions and making sure you're going with the right people and. Um, that's our job is to get to get them to the best we can because as soon as they start going to school and going to college, we lose a little bit of them. And they become their own little people. No. And then they, have, <laughs> then they get to raise their own children after that. No. <laughs> it's not so. It's just milkshakes and chicken wings. And... <laughs> well, college, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. you know, was, uh, what was that stuff called? The noodles? The little oh, cup of ramen. noodles. Ramen. Ramen and yeah. Diet Cokes for me. That's all I had. Sounds you know. delicious. Ramen and Diet Coke mixed together, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> eventually they did, yeah. <laughs> I have another question for you about yeah. the work that you did previously. Yeah. So you had worked to help build the epilepsy. Oh yeah. At uh, UCI. Yes. Yeah. So I'd love to hear more about children that have, uh-huh. just how you notice that when epilepsy sort of begins yeah. to show itself, do kids grow out of it? Mm. Do you see, I just want to get, yep. get into this. So, um, yeah, you're you're asking me to scratch my brain. It's been uh, years since I did that, but um, but yeah, epilepsy is uh, seizures, right? So you have a, uh, a discharge in the brain that's a non-functional discharge of electricity, and it causes to have sometimes movements that are witnessed from the outside. Sometimes we don't know. 
um, because you can't tell from the outside that they're having these these uh, the seizures. Lots of classifications of different types of seizures, um, varying degrees of severity. Um, probably the most common one that we see in the office even today is something called febrile seizures. Febrile seizures are more of a symptom um, than necessarily a diagnosis. It's not epilepsy. It's a, it's a reflection of the fever that you got. Uh, and it's usually, it's, it's not related to necessarily how high the temperature goes, but at what rate it gets there. And so if the fever goes, if the temperature goes from normal to 105 in a few seconds, the risk for anybody at any age to have a seizure is there. Uh, the, the febrile seizure risk groups are uh, zero to five years of age. 5% of that population all have febrile seizures. So it's fairly common uh, disease, fairly common symptom. Um, epilepsy is something different, right? Something that uh, it's not something not working right in the brain. And again, I'm oversimplifying this. That causes you to have these discharges in the brain that have these movements on the outside. Um, those kids that are diagnosed with epilepsy are, are being monitored by a pediatric neurologist. And uh, sometimes medication is an option for them. Um, they're uh, people that are very, you know, normally functioning, healthy individuals. I know a couple colleagues of mine, nurse practitioners. One of them runs a big trauma center down south, and another one is a PhD level um, researcher, and they have epilepsy that they are well controlled, and they do really, obviously, really well. So, and then there are other kids that multiple seizure events can cause you to stop breathing. And then you have brain anoxia, which then causes further brain damage. And then you have a devastated child at that point. So there's varying degrees of epilepsy. And um, we, see, we see, again, a fair amount, most commonly febrile seizures. So let's say that you have a little baby who spikes a temperature. Yeah. Not somebody that's able to communicate to you. Right, right. So this little baby spikes, has the febrile, that's how you... Febrile seizure. Febrile mm-hmm. seizure. How do you diagnose for that individual to... If, I was to come into the office, my let's say my child had that, mm-hmm. and I say, hey, I noticed this, this happened, mm-hmm. you know, I'm freaking out. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you tell the difference between a febrile seizure versus maybe a child that does have It's really epilepsy? true, that's epilepsy. So good question. So my expectation is if your child is an infant and they start having movements that mimics a seizure, that's a 911 call. You're going to the ER at that point. And what, what do those movements look like? Yeah, so you have varying, there's different kind of movements. The generalized head-to-toe shaking, the generalized movements, um, where there's just uncontrolled, uncoordinated movements of all extremities. Um, you have sometimes focal movements, they're called, where you have the child facing one direction, the eyes rolling upwards, maybe posturing an arm up or an arm down and stiff on one side. You can also have general stiffness. Uh, there's another type of seizure called salam seizure and fatal spasms where the child almost bends in half because they're having these rhythmic motions and bending in half. So those are pretty obvious. <laughs> so if anything obvious like that is happening, I don't want you to hesitate. You call 911. You so go it doesn't even matter if it's just a few seconds. Right. If you right. see that, you're calling 911. I think so because yeah. the, the potential for that to be complex, something wrong is, is in there. And that's not something that can wait till the visit for the next day at the office or... And some of the fears, or not fears, but some of the real outcomes that could transpire could be that the child may stop breathing. Yes, something along absolutely. those times. So that's Correct. really where the need for like a 911 yeah. type of help, emergency help comes in. Yeah. That's, that, that's really it. It's the stop breathing. Correct. Absolutely. Okay. So they turn blue around the lips. They are obviously having these huge movements. You can't control them. The child can't control them. That's, uh, yeah, not a one cause of I think within about five seconds of you seeing your child doing that, you're going to call me. Right? I mean, you'd think so. You know? But at the same time, time yeah. if you're a new parent 
and you've never had a baby and you just see your kid kind of stiffen up and do something a little weird and you're like, what was that? And you don't yeah. really know. Yeah. And then you take them in and, and then it's like, okay, you know, it because it may not be really violent and apparent. It, yeah. it may not yeah. be super apparent. Well, I mean, yeah, my child used to like when he would go to sleep, he would yes. take his legs up and smash them against the bed. And he <laughs> did it sometimes where his top half didn't do anything, and the, just his bottom half would just be like, "Bam!" That's pretty good. Bam! That's like and I'm like, I don't thing. know if he's having a, a medical problem, yeah. or you know, my wife was a soccer player, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I'm like, right? I, and I'm a drummer. Taking after her, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's yeah. got the quads and there he goes. the what are yeah, the, the calves <laughs> and the quads together, just like. Bam, bam. Yeah. And I was like, honey, is there something wrong with our child? Because like it was very odd. But sorry. This, you sound like he was just point. pissed about going to sleep. <laughs> I think he was. But, I think he was. Um, exploring his body, honestly. Yes. Yeah. But, you yeah. know, I mean, I think I think you're right. I think the vast majority of the time it's super obvious. And the parents are just going to go, oh, what's wrong with my kid? I'm going to go. And hopefully you call 911 and not jump through them in the car and drive. But that's most of the time I see those kids go to the ER. Every once in a while, you're right, though. It's reflux or constipation or... Or um, you know something minor that the kid's doing, and but I'd rather you go and yeah. that sort it out, and then come see us after, and we'll we'll hopefully then remedy what's going on at that point. But um, yeah, when you talk about reflux and constipation, all that kids will contort themselves in various positions, but throughout they're engaged, locked in with you. They're making eye contact. They're they're able to um, they it'll they're able to stop the movements and seizures. You can't. You lose eye contact. You usually soil yourself, and then you pass out afterwards. Usually, so so those are kind of key differences between the two. Let's say that you have a newborn who is trying new foods, mm-hmm. so moving off the mm-hmm. epilepsy aspect of it. But they're trying new foods, and you notice that maybe they're having a reaction that seems as if. Mm-hmm. It's not positive to mm-hmm. a food that they're trying. Okay, like an allergic reaction. An allergic reaction or, or, to something. Or, or, or sensitivity or you're whatever. You're just yeah. noticing something. Not like, right. And they're not able to communicate. Right. So they can't say like, my throat itches a little bit or my lips feel big yeah, or yeah, yeah. something along those lines. Yeah. Good. Excellent. So most kids react in a specific way when it comes to al- full-on allergies to foods. They get hives, very red, big, impressive, blotchy hives. And they get bloody mucousy diarrhea. Parents are going to be like, whoa, what's this? Um, anything else in between that's not those two big obvious things is not an allergy. It's something else. So now you mentioned the, the lip swelling and the throat itchy and all that. That's exceedingly rare. Less than 110% of all allergy response. So we've already defined allergy as a small population. One-tenth of 1% of those kids are having that anaphylactic allergy where you lose the ability to breathe. So that's blue around the lips, passing out, you know, 911, going to the ER stuff, okay? Bloody mucousy diarrhea and hives is give your kid Benadryl and call your pediatrician. Hopefully call me, and then we'll sort it out at that moment. Um, It turns out that allergy testing isn't that helpful. A lot of parents want to come in and go, my kids are my family history and I want to get them tested. It really doesn't tell you if it comes back positive for, for peanuts. It doesn't say that peanuts is causing this reaction in you. The blood test doesn't do that. So it's really not necessarily helpful. The only time we'll consider, and this is talking to my allergy colleagues out there. This is what they tell me. They say, don't test them. Let, bring them to me and let me sort it out as an allergy specialist. And I go, well, that makes sense. 
So the only time that we'll test them ahead of time is when we truly have a very allergic kid, watery eyes, constantly dripping, doing a bunch of inhalers, taking a bunch of steroids just to exist. Then we're like, let's get a ball rolling on this kid. We'll do a bunch of allergy testing and then send you to our specialists at that point. Even though you're not necessarily an allergy specialist, mm -hmm. if you have a patient who has a severe food allergy, mm -hmm. that could go into anaphylactic shock. Yeah. What is that process like for a parent? Yes. To, to arm themselves, understand, prepare, sure. and prep their child. Yeah. So once we've defined that your kid has anaphylaxis to a particular item, so they've had an event where they've had this momentary uh, scary as hell um, stop breathing type of thing, um, then we arm them with EpiPen. And if the kids, um, you know, there's different EpiPens for different sizes of kids as well. And we spend a lot of time teaching them how to use it and when to administer it. When they're in school, the school nurses all are prepared and know how to do it. Even the staff and the, the teachers on campus know how to use it. So, Can you explain <clears throat> just for maybe someone listening that's unfamiliar what an EpiPen is yeah, and sorry. what it helps with? <laughs> EpiPen, yes. It's uh, epinephrine. Epinephrine is that chemical that uh, if we uh, inject it in our body, immediately stops the swelling that's associated with anaphylaxis and allows the body to kind of recover and breathe again. Um, it it's, uh, works in the synapses, at the, the, the muscle tissue in order to relax the airway in particular and some of the structures in the mouth to help the child breathe again. It also works in the lung tissue to help it make it easier for the child to breathe as well. Um, and it's, uh, the EpiPen is a really cool invention uh, where you just simply um, press it against the thigh of the child's or the stomach or the arm and, and injects the perfect amount based on the child's weight of medicine in order to keep that kid safe. And so kids have their own prescriptive EpiPens. It's not just That's like it. something you can go pick up off the shelf at CVS. Yes, correct. Yeah. So these are all required prescriptions. And so once we've defined that your kid needs that level of assistance, then we prescribe it for you so that you have it with you. And then usually at school-age kids, they have one at home and one at school, and they carry one around with them. It's been interesting. <laughs> all schools have EpiPens, are required to have them, but then there's so many... Uh, kids out there that have suspected food allergies and not actually defined food allergies that the parents are demanding EpiPens from their providers. And so there's an, a glut, there's a bunch of them. And the company just recently increased their prices. Of EpiPens. So that. you've heard that story, yeah. right? And it's sort of a, a bit of a, it's a, it, for me, it's a quandary. I kind of scratch my head about this because they're already at the schools. They have EpiPens. So if your kid has like suspected food allergy, I mean, I get it. You want to be prepared for any eventuality. That totally makes sense to me. But they will have those the, the material, the EpiPen at school to be able to administer your kid if by chance he gets that. And then those kids who really need it, the 1% of those kids that have severe food allergies, it's it's a really stretch for the parents to go buy it if the insurance doesn't cover it. Mm -hmm. Is it available? They Is it sold out? Too, right? They expire pretty quickly. Yeah. I don't know, I think six months or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so you're always constantly having to you know spend this ton of, ton of money for, for a drug that's absolutely needed for your child. So it's tough for us sometimes to tease out you know, where the parents are saying maybe the kid might have a potential food allergy. We haven't quite defined it yet versus a kid who really has one who really needs it. Um, I don't know. I, it's a it's a quandary. I scratch. My, I think the, the best solution is to make it free. And so that doesn't or and easily available, maybe even buy it at the grocery store at that point. So that way it's not an issue. But Joe EpiPen wouldn't be making any money if it was free. That's the problem. So. <laughs> That's the problem. And yeah. if you do have to administer, let's say that you are somebody that would experience anaphylactic shock, and mm -hmm. let's say that it is administered, mm -hmm. typically 
even once it's administered, you still need to connect with 911 and get emergency. Yeah, that's the recommendation. So, yeah. And then sometimes you may need to give a second dose. So that's why there's always two in a kit. And so you have that second dose ready. Hopefully by then 911's come and they have actually a vial of epinephrine. So if they need to continue to give it, they can. Yeah. That's a tough one. I don't, I mean, I wouldn't wish a truly allergic kid on any parent at all because it's super challenging and, and you worry about them. Um, all the time, um, but we, we need to definitely have an easier way of being able to get access to the medicine. Have you seen more children with allergies? In- um, no, I think they're just better defined allergies yeah. than they were before. Maybe in the past we used to say, oh yeah, your kids have allergies here, take some Benadryl, Claritin, you could have a nice day. But now we're actually digging into finding out what particular antigens are causing their allergies and what's causing their symptoms. Maybe hopefully remove that thing from their life and so it makes them easier to exist. Um, I'm convinced there's some kids that are just allergic to Southern California. <laughs> I, I find that hard yeah. to believe. Hard to believe, they right? Surfed. No, they haven't been in the ocean. I agree. When I was growing up, that was just the cure for everything. Hey, yeah. I got this little. Just go in the water. Yeah, grandma, around, go away. grandma right? told you she's like, here's yeah, your ginger got... lemon tea. Now get in the ocean. <laughs> get in the ocean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a little pink eye. Yeah, just swim around. K. Open your eye in the water. You'll be fine. Vitamin K. That's yeah, all vitamin K. That's yeah. all you need. Yeah. So it's uh, it's it's just those kids that that have chronic runny nose and watery eyes. And, you know, we live in the most polluted city in the country. Long Beach, the Long Beach area, LA, LA Basin is the most polluted city in the country. So it's not surprising that kids develop these protective mechanisms to keep the stuff out. So they have more mucus, they have more watery eyes just to keep the toxins out. To me, that makes sense. And uh, so we see these what look like allergy symptoms, but it's just living where we live where we're confounded with all this stuff. So. Well, we covered a lot. Is that it? Well, not quite it, okay. but we covered, we covered a lot, but I want you to leave the audience with a key takeaway. Sure. Oof. So, yes, uh, I have a couple, but I'll focus on one. Um, the most important thing to me is, for those of you in California, there is an assembly bill, Assembly Bill 890, uh, to allow independent practice for nurse practitioners in the state of California. Something that's sorely needed. Um, there's definitely a shortage of primary care providers in our state. And we need to make it easier for us to be able to practice independently. Um, current state is right now, I have a, a physician partner who's um, part owner of my practice, who uh, is very helpful. Uh, she does wonderful help to our practice. She does a lot of uh, quality control. She does chart review. Uh, she helps us with new um, treatment paradigms when they come up. Um, I pay her for that service. And... Um, she doesn't see patients in my office. She's not allowed to see patients in my office because we're a nurse practitioner only practice. Um, it would be nice not to have to have her in the practice. Doesn't mean I'm not going to get rid of her. You know, give, if the law passes, I probably keep her because she's been such a useful tool. But I should be able to go to practice without necessarily that needing to have that support. Um, the other complex issue related to independent nurse practitioners is is insurance billing. Um, insurance is um, discount the bill for nurse practitioners by 25%. So to have a physician on board allows you to, to bill at the physician level uh, reimbursement rate. And so we get then a rate that's competitive and not 25% discounted. So so the law is AB 890. Um, it did pass the assembly uh, actually recently. on my birthday, January yeah. 28th. Uh, Happy recently. birthday. Thank you. Um, did we stop counting them now, though? <laughs> so it's like, whatever. Uh, and uh, it's in the Senate. It has to go through committee in the Senate. And uh, uh, Assemblyman Wood, 
I don't remember where he's from, but there's a very good website. If you go to uh, CANP, ooh, I think I'm not going to get this one wrong. But you guys, can you put it on your... We can link it. Okay, yeah, we'll cool. Show notes. Uh, it's the California Association of Nurse Practitioners. It uh, has a link that talks about their grassroots efforts and all the people that are involved. And, and if you feel like contributing, that would be the place to contribute to help support this bill moving forward. Uh, talk to your assemblymen, talk to your congressmen. Let's get this thing passed so that we have better access to care. Uh, we have cheaper access to care because we are cheaper than the physicians. And uh, and then we can spend more time with you uh, at each and every visit and hopefully improve wellness, overall wellness in our state. Yeah, we'll link that. I was looking up a little bit about cool. the research, but you can also Google just bill AB 890 yes, as well absolutely. and find a lot of literature and information Great. on it and sort of see the variations of yeah. The process that it's been through with the Senate yeah. already. Awesome. Can I sneak one more in there? Please do. Yeah. I'm Please sorry. do. Two keys. I've just read a book. It's changing the way I think about medicine completely. Um, while I was growing up in the 70s, my dad would come. He came home once after a conference. He's like, there's this new paradigm in healthcare and we're all going to start following it. And back then it was cut out the salt, reduce the amount of meat. There's, there's a consistent theme there. Uh, increase the amount of fruits and vegetables you're eating. Add vitamin C you know, go take a walk every day for 30 minutes. And that was Sulk. I think that he was the author for that one. Uh, this one is, is, is called, um, the author is David Sinclair. And um, he is a, a Harvard geneticist. And he is actually has research to, to um, consider aging to be a disease and not an inevitability. And um, he's identified seven to nine different pathways that cause aging and he's affected each and every one of them in order to not only improve, you know, their lifespan. So that's the name of the book lifespan, but to make it healthier. So no one wants to see their parents the last 10 years of life slowly decline. Not only is it hard to watch, it's super expensive. I watched my dad do that. And over the, over the last few years of his life, watch him decline from being an active person, participating person of society to being able to sit in front of a TV and not do much else. Um, I don't want to be like that. So this book gives me some hope that that can happen. And so I do recommend it to everybody should read it. Not for kids, not a pediatric thing, um, but for adults and for parents in particular. Um, it's really going to change how you think about diet, nutrition, activity, exercise. It actually works down to the genetic level. Which is so. really what the direction of healthcare is sort of going yeah. to anyway. That's it's it. like that's there's no one nutrition plan that works for no. you. There's not one healing modality that works for Correct. everyone. It really is specific, specific, to your specific and individualized. Yeah. Yeah. He actually has a device that it's not ready for prime time yet. That's part of his paradigm is like we're at the cutting edge here. And by the time it gets to, the, to us down at the ground floor, um, it's 50 years later before uh, medical practice changes. So he's offering these changes now that we can all do without having to go see our doctor. And uh, which is kind of, you know, I still want you to come see me, but, um, but nonetheless, um, read it. It's a good read. Um, it's difficult to get through. Sometimes there's a lot of biochemistry in there, but there's really good stories and there's practical applications to real wood life. And if it, and there's no harm in doing what he does. And if it makes you live a little longer, live a little healthier, why not? That's excellent. Lifespan by what's the author's name again? David Sinclair. David Sinclair. So yeah. we'll link it. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Yeah, but that was another question of mine was a resource you would recommend. So <laughs> that's, that's one perfect. Of them. Yeah, that's, that's one awesome. of them, yeah. And then where can everyone find you? Excellent. So uh, I already mentioned my website. You'll probably have that linked as well. Uh, we're here in Long Beach. Uh, Growing Healthy Together is the name of my practice. Um, it's at 3835 East 7th Street in Long Beach. We're just down the street from the high school. And, um, you know, look at us on our website, check us out, give us a call, text message us. 
We take text messages. Uh, we get a lot of, we have this new app for your phone. It's called Spruce Health. Um, once you're a patient in the practice, you sign up. Vast majority of uh, you young folks like to text us. So we, we are happy to do that. I get a lot of pictures and videos and documents all through that text messaging app. And it's a way to prevent necessarily having you go to the ER or even come in for an office visit. If you send me a picture of the kid's belly button and it looks fine, uh, we're going to be like, yeah, fine. No worries. Don't do anything. We'll see you next time. That's so revolutionary because I just imagine, <laughs> you know, this years ago, you had to pay $60 to go and have someone look at a belly button two weeks yeah. later. You two know, weeks later, like, yeah. You know, it's just, you know, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean that's that's also part of our whole you know getting this AB eight ninety passed. You know how how long does it take to get into specialty or primary care services now? Well, we have same day of eight same day slots open for every patient every day, and for most of our wellness visits, we can get you in within two weeks. So we're doing our best to try and break that old model. That's awesome. And then social. Go ahead and... My social media stuff? Yeah, share um, your social. Like the Instagram and, and Facebook. Facebook. Yeah. We do have all active... You know, it's GHT Kids is our moniker. And so you can find us on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. We're very active, I think. Are we? <laughs> you know, I don't really get on the Twitter. My, on the Twitter is kind of old news, right? <laughs> so the, my daughter does all that. And she's been really supportive and helpful in getting it out there. And so... Um, no, and I do have a new thing coming up as well. I'm t- putting out a video blog. Uh, that's through my LinkedIn account. So if you want to look look me up on LinkedIn, it's called myownpractice.com, and it's going to teach other nurse practitioners how to start their own practice. That's awesome. awesome. So, and if someone who is not local wanted to reach out to you just through the website, yeah, absolutely. That's why. Yeah, yeah, of course. Great. Or text. Or text. Or text. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, Mike. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. We appreciate the conversation, all of the insight. Great. We love that you have distilled this information down for us to oh, help I hope us. So. Thanks for helping us elevate the vibe. Yeah, you got it, man. Okay, cool. <laughs> Sorry, we had to get that one in there. Sorry, part of the gig. What up, Vibe Hive? If this podcast has brought you any value, please rate and review on your favorite listening platform. And if you're really feeling generous, share with a friend. Visit us at elevatethevibe.co for show notes on this episode and previous episodes. This podcast is intended to educate, entertain, and inspire. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or substitute for professional medical advice. Please consult your healthcare provider with any questions you may have. Thank you for helping us to elevate the vibe.